My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. It's time for the movie's Four Reels of Fame. This is the 15th episode of the History of Film, Future Presentations. Hello and welcome back to the History of Film. Today we cover the beginning of the end of the Thomas Edison Trust and Edison's iron grip on the American film industry. This will pave the way for a new group of people to gain an iron grip on the American film industry. We will also see an important change in the way film in the United States and the world was produced and distributed, beginning the feature film, which still dominates movie theaters today. To begin our story, we have to introduce a new player to our stage. This person will be really important to the history of film for the next couple of decades, and even though he will be more directly involved with the events of the next episode, his story is an excellent example of the people who are beginning to fight against the MPPC, so we introduce him today. Welcome future head of Universal Studios, Carl Lamely. Carl Lamely was born on the 17th of January, 1867, in Lofheim, a city in Germany. At the age of 17, he emigrated to the United States, a member of a large German population of immigrants entering the U.S. at the end of the 19th century. Lamely scraped by for about his first 10 years in the United States, working in New York and Chicago until he landed a job that his talents were particularly suited to, a bookkeeper for a clothing company in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. While it may not sound as immediately momentous as W.K.L. Dixon being hired to work for Edison or Alice Guy accepting a position from Leon Gamot, this was a fundamental position for Lemley. As writer Christina Stanke-Mutsea puts it in her article about Lemley for the website Immigrant Entrepreneurship, in this new position, quote, Carl pursued ideas to increase sales through better and more creative advertising. He familiarized himself with such concepts as publicity and showmanship, and became known in Oshkosh for creating bold advertising campaigns, producing and distributing sales catalogs, and following up with customer feedback. Also, he made the store more attractive by building inviting window displays that reflected the current season or the events taking place in the city. Clearly, Lamely had found his calling. Salesmanship, advertising, and public relations. He became a manager in the company that he worked for, increasing his income and allowing for some savings. Lamely began work in Oshkosh in 1894, got married several years later, and in 1906, decided to become his own boss and began the process of preparing his own business. That business was, you guessed it, a Nickelodeon. Lamely opened his first Nickelodeon in Chicago, Illinois in 1906. Later, he opened a second. Lamely found large and immediate success, according to Mutsea, in the film exhibition business, as Nickelodeon viewership was soaring and he was one of the first exhibitors in the city. Soon, Lamely personally owned dozens of Nickelodeons and found grand success in his venture. But even for successful business owners, the expense of buying individual prints of movies was enormous. For all the reasons we went over in episode 14, the purchase system for film distribution wasn't practical, and so in October of 1906, the same year Lamely opened his first theater, he opened up his own film exchange, the creatively named Lamely Film Service. 
In fact, according to his New York Times obituary, his exchange was the very first one, though keep in mind that David A. Cook cites the Miles brothers as having begun their exchange a year earlier. By 1908, Laneley's exchange was the largest in the United States. And you'll never guess what else began in 1908. That's right, the Motion Picture Patents Company. For Laneley, perhaps more than almost anyone else, this was an unmitigated disaster. The extremity of the MPPC's requirements seemed designed to suck profits away from his burgeoning film empire. In fact, it was him and everyone else. So our man Laneley did two things. The first was to get around Edison's requirements by making his own movies. And so that's exactly what he did forming the Independent Motion Picture Company in 1909, abbreviated as IMP, or, more playfully, IMP. This production company is written about all over the place, but for the life of me I can't figure out where independents like IMP got their film stock, as Kodak was contracted to only provide it to the trust. I don't know if Kodak just broke their contract and sold to the independents anyway, or if there were smaller film manufacturers that people like Lemley were able to buy raw film stock from. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, because what's important is that somehow, Lemley and others got raw film stock and started making their own movies. Each one of these must have felt like a slap in the face to the despots of the MPPC, The second thing Lemley did to try and overthrow the Edison Trust was to use the power of the law to battle Edison wherever he could. In the same year that he founded IMP, Lemley sought a court-ordered disruption of the MPPC, citing it as an illegal monopoly. Edison and the Trust countered with hundreds of lawsuits against Lemley and his associates in the coming years. Lemley would not fight the battle against the Trust alone. Instead, he would attempt to lead a group resistance that would be universal among independent producers and exchangers. Samuel Jackson says it well in the 2011 film The Avengers, directed by Joss Whedon. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people and see if they could become something more. See if they could work together when we needed them to, to fight the battles that we never could. In 1910, Lamely and other independents would form the Motion Picture Distributing and Sales Company, a corporation which resorted to many of the same tactics that Edison and his group was using in order to remain competitive in the film industry. This does take off some of the luster from the term independent, as it clearly no longer applied to the group of producers and distributors that made up the MPDC. Very different, we promise. The formation of the second quote-unquote independent group created the two poles that the American film industry would revolve around during this era. Lemley took the helm of the independents, and, with all the backing that he could muster, all but declared war on Edison and the Trust. In just a few years, the MPPC would be forced to cry uncle before being totally obliterated by the high courts of the United States. Lemley and other independents would lead this charge, but there were several factors, both within and without of Lemley's influence, that ultimately brought the Edison machine to its knees. The first was the increasing length of the movies. The films that the factories were pumping out at a breakneck pace were one-reelers, and that was just how the MPPC wanted them to stay. 
one real film production had been honed to a science. Beyond the fact that the process of industrialization likes nothing so much as a good standardization, one reelers could be made quickly, cheaply, and widely distributed to any movie house or Nickelodeon. And importantly, they sold well by the foot, as exhibitors could rent however many reels they wanted without consideration of a continuous story. Aside from the economic advantages of one-reelers from the producer's perspective, cinema was still extremely new, and there were questions as to the public's ability to pay attention to a silent film for more than 10 to 12 minutes. It was easier, as far as the trust was concerned, to simply make movies that were one-reel long. David A. Cook, in his always excellent A History of Narrative Film, points out the obvious limitations of such a scheme. The comparative lack of information that could be contained in one reel made complex characters and plots all but impossible to achieve. Original stories made specifically for film had to be brief, and adapting existing stories to film could be… difficult. There were no less than five Dickens novels adapted to be one-reelers. Remember silent films averaging about 12 minutes in length. It's an idea that is both comedic and sickening to anyone who prefers some kind of comprehensible plot in their movies. This was also the case for other famous novels and plays, which were not served well by the brevity of the rather limited one-reeler. Still, there were some MPPC filmmakers who were pushing the limits of the medium even under such draconian requirements as only one reel at a time. Movies like director J. Stuart Blackton's religious epic The Life of Moses from 1909, produced by Vitagraph, had a story that ran across an impressive five reels of film. Director D.W. Griffith's 1910 film, His Trust, a film depicting the period of reconstruction after the American Civil War using ample amounts of blackface, was two reels long and was produced by Biograph. Movies like the ones we just mentioned were released serially, with a new reel being shipped out every week. The trust was determined to hold on to their one-reel requirement, which affected the quality of the viewing experience for audiences. Griffith's His Trust, for example, begins with a title card reading, His Trust is the first part of a life story, the second part being His Trust Fulfilled. And while the second part is a sequel to the first, each part is a complete story itself. So, you know, there are two movies made at the same time that make up one story, but to see the second half, you don't need to see the first half. It's an independent sequel that's also the second half of the first one. Don't think about it. Jokes aside, the two quote-unquote independent stories are clearly one film, and making them separate wouldn't improve the experience of watching it in any way, but instead makes it significantly more confusing. Exhibitors, seeing that their presentations would be better if they resisted the Trust's one-week-at-a-time mandate, would sometimes simply refuse to show a film in serial form. Instead, they would simply insist on having all of its pieces before presenting any of it. The Trust eventually relented, and Griffith's next movie, Enoch Arden, was released as a full two-reel presentation in 1911. Enoch Arden isn't a very important film per se, but it's worth talking about a little bit in this context. Compared to many of the other films The Trust was releasing, this one is shockingly watchable, and uses just about all of the cinematic advancements we've talked about so far. The film switches comfortably between medium, wide, and close-up shots. The actors are giving fairly convincing performances, parallel editing, and effective use of the shot as the basic unit of meaning in the movie make it just glide along. 
This is aided by its two-reel runtime, as 30 minutes gives the audience time to know and feel for the characters, and try to understand the complex feelings and relationships that they share. It's quite good, even if it's not spectacular. Just as important, it's the first adaptation that I'm aware of of Alfred Lloyd Tennyson's poem of the same name, in which a man becomes shipwrecked for years and returns home to find his wife has remarried. While the 1911 film was produced as a melodrama, D.W. Griffith's particular catnip, other filmmakers would use the same story as a basis for comedy, including Too Many Husbands, directed by Wesley Ruglis from 1940, which stars the always wonderful Gene Arthur, and the Garrison Kane-directed My Favorite Wife from the same year. My Favorite Wife is a much more famous version of the story starring Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, and is actually a gender swap where the wife is shipwrecked and returns home to find her husband has remarried. If you have a chance to watch it, it's hilarious and I recommend it. These are just two high-profile examples of this plot that would become familiar to movie-going audiences for decades, and we see the first example of it here, with Griffith and the Trust's first multiple-reel single release. The small concessions by the MPPC in releasing some two-reel films at once were not enough to prepare them for the tsunami of feature films that were about to crash into the United States from Europe. In France, the early cinema project Film Dart was in full swing, producing filmed versions of famous and important plays. This was an attempt to raise cinema's perceived value in the eyes of yet unconvinced middle and upper class people. We'll talk more about film to art when it gets its own episode in the near future. But for now, all you need to know is that the people behind it were making films of already famous plays starring famous actors of the French stage in their lead roles. One of these movies, the 1912 film Les Amours de la Reine Elisabeth, or The Loves and the Reign of Elizabeth, was a then-staggering three-and-a-half reels in length, with a runtime of over 50 minutes. This was snatched up for U.S. distribution by one Adolf Zukor, an entrepreneur who we introduced last week in episode 14a. Zukor, an independent owner of Nickelodeon's, distributed Les Amours de la Reine Elisabeth in its lengthy entirety. Again, we'll talk about it more when we do film to art, but suffice it to say now that when you read about this movie in any film history book, the writers always take great pains to describe all the ways La Reine Elizabeth was bad. Even with its comparative lack of technical sophistication, compared to many of the movies that we've talked about in recent episodes, its astounding length made it a huge hit with audiences. Reportedly, Zukor walked away with more than $60,000 in pure profit from his distribution of the film, with the equivalent buying power of more than $1.5 million in 2021. With these profits, Zukor founded his own production company, Famous Players, in 1912, which, with some name changes, will remain a constant in the story of film till today. This is only the very beginning of our time with Adolf Zukor. But the French and their filmed art were not the only game in town. Italian filmmakers were busy creating epic-length super-spectacles, full of special effects and action. Like filmed art, we'll cover early Italian film in their own episodes soon, so suffice it to say now that if La Reine Elisabeth cracked the door open to feature films in the United States, movies like the over-two-hour-long Italian epic 1913's Quo Vadis exploded it. Projected only at high-class stage theaters to attract middle- and upper-class audiences, Quovatis would prove to be the death knell of the city Nickelodeon, 
as producers would learn that they could make more money if they just charged more for more elaborate and longer movies at bigger and fancier venues. The feature film was here to stay, and it would bulldoze the old model of making money in cinema. These longer movies became called feature films, a precedent of the feature act from a vaudeville show, and would be the specific event that people would be coming to see at theaters, rather than a buffet of smaller films. A feature became defined in this era as a movie taking place over four or more reels of film. This appears to be completely arbitrary, and could have just as easily been three or five reels, but we still feel the impact of this distinction. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences still defines a short film as being less than 40 minutes in length, and a feature film as being more than 40 minutes. I'm not sure, but it seems to me to be a remnant of this early definition of feature. I think most of us would define a feature film in our heart as being at least 70 minutes long. But surely by this point I digress. The point is that feature films were long, often much longer than the entire 20-60 to minute collection of shorts that were the standard fare at Nickelodeon's before this. People like Zukor and others quickly changed the method of charging for film distribution from being based solely on length to being a price that was calculated by taking into account the costs of making a movie and how much the movie actually brought in. This was the beginning of modern box office economics, which still exists today. The trust, however, was comparatively slow to adapt to this new economic model. The MPPC's policies favored its own products over European imports, and would see them lose their edge to independents who were more than happy to import the latest feature film. But it was not just the trust's failure to adapt to the changing tastes of audiences that caused it to lag behind the independents. It was also a failure to create those tastes, and it's here that Carl Lemley comes back in, because if Lemley knew anything, he knew how to advertise, and he would begin the most effective form of advertising in film history, selling movies based only on the names of the people who were in them. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of Film. Sorry to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger, especially if you're a nerd like me. I was originally going to make one massive episode that covered all of the details of the downfall of the Trust, but it was getting entirely out of hand. So, look forward to next week when we cover the creation of the star system and the move to Hollywood. I'd like to thank writer Christina Stanka Mutsea for her extensive and excellent biographical account of Carl Lemley from Immigrant Entrepreneurship, a website produced by the German Historical Institute. It was the principal source for all of Lemley's early biography at the beginning of the episode and was extremely thorough. Also, as an aside, I'd like to promise that we will talk about D.W. Griffith in much greater detail. Like Italian film and film to art, he'll be getting his own episode and episodes later, but I wanted to cover all of the context for Griffith's most important films, including Italian Spectacle, before we get to them. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate your emails. And you can visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to view helpful resources for each episode. As always, thank you for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>